From Honor Flight Chicago, this is a veteran story. The story of John Ulinski, a farmer's son from Ohio who enlisted in the Navy at 18 in the months before D-Day. John would become part of the inaugural crew on the newly commissioned USS Arakara, an ocean-going tug that had as its first combat mission, Omaha Beach. John, at that point in his young life, became a witness to history and the horrors of war. But John's story does not end with D-Day. He and his shipmates would later be sent to the Pacific where they would dodge constant artillery fire and dreaded kamikaze attacks in the battle for Okinawa, the largest amphibious invasion in the Pacific. John Ulinski was among the comparative few who served in both the Atlantic and Pacific theaters. This is his story. It's really good to see you again, John. You're looking great. And uh, we ought to note that you are 96 years old. Back in April, you hit your, your 96th birthday. Congratulations. Well, I've got the best life in the world. Good for you. Absolutely. To what do you attribute your longevity? First of all, I never smoked in my life. And then secondly, you eat good things. I eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, hardly any red meat, because I'm tired of eating red meat, because when we lived on a farm, that's all we ever ate. I like to eat pork and chicken and fish, fish especially. Yeah. Do you have a liquid refreshment that you go along with that? My refreshments? Yeah. I like my Manhattans. <laughs> <laughs> I have my Manhattan every day. Uh, regularity, huh? Yes, sir. That's the I mean, secret and, to and life. I've been drinking a Manhattan ever since I was about 45 years old. Okay, all right. Let me take you back to the farm in Defiance, Ohio, yeah. where you grew up. You had uh, nine kids in the family. We had nine. Actually, there were 11 siblings, but two died in infancy. But there were nine of us that grew up to. And out of the nine of us, there's just three of us left. So the war is underway, and you don't want to be sitting at home. You're yeah. on the farm, and you have a conversation with your dad. And what do you tell him? Well, he said, I, first of all, I told him, I said, Dad, I know you want me on a farm, but I said, everybody was going in the military, and I said, I don't want to be classified for, as 4F. So that I, I never, ever defied my dad. But that was the first time I ever defied my dad. How did he react to that? So when I told him I was going, he said, no, you're not. I said, yes, I am. And since I was 18 years of age, I signed up by myself. From the time I signed up in May till the time they took me in June, my dad never spoke to me. Oh. He, was, he was very bitter against me. Well, he was fearful that something but, bad was going to happen to you. But when, when I was leaving, he grabbed me. And we both had tears in our eyes. And we says, don't let this separate us. Yeah. And I left, and he hugged me, and he says, God bless you. And then when I came back after boot camp, my dad, as much as he didn't want me to go to the service, when I came home on, from Great Lakes on my two-week leave, his chest was so big, it tore all the buttons. 
he, you know, so proud. And he says, I was in my Navy uniform and he took me all over Defiance there. And he says, here's my boy, look at my boy. <laughs> And then after, see, you couldn't, you can write letters, but before every letter that was discharged from the ship, they had to be checked out. Right. Because they were afraid you'd be giving out information, and at that time, like they all used to say, loose, loose lips, lips sink ships. ships. And so they, every letter was censored before it was shut out. But like I say, my dad, between my family and myself, we worked out a little code. And like when I would write letters and I'd leave out a different letter in each, you know, so then they'd piece all the letters together and they'd find out where the hell I was at. Really? Yeah. You code breaker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a sly thing to do. And you chose Navy. Why did you choose Navy? Well, you know, when you watch some of these World War One movies, how they were in the, in foxholes and everything, I says, hell, I'm not going to do that. I says, I'm going to go someplace where I can sleep in a bunk, I can take a shower every day, and I can have three square meals a day, and that's when I took the Navy. The Arakara was an ocean-going tug yeah, and a fleet tug, so... A tug maybe connotes a smaller vessel, but this was a big ship. This oh, yes. was 200 it, feet long. It, it's, it was pretty much the length, almost the length of a, what a destroyer is mm -hmm. or a uh, destroyer escort. And actually, we were, our beam was 39 feet wide, and we sat in the water 17 and a half feet deep. And the reason why we were so deep, because we see the ship that I was on, in case any ship was out of commission, it was our job to go to hook it up and pull her into a safe haven. And the, 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 our propeller on the ship was a 10-foot in diameter propeller, single propeller is all we had. And the shaft that drove it was 18 inches in diameter. So your mission on the Arakara is to rescue disabled ships Any. and to clear the path so that our forces can get to where they need to go. When you left for England on the Arakara, you didn't really know it was coming, but you had an inkling. And I remember you telling me that your skipper had a message for all the men on the, on yeah, the ship. Yeah, just before we were going to go for a Normandy invasion. What did he say? He says, well, he says, we know we were sent here for something big, and this was like... June sixth, the invasion. 44. Well, around midnight, he says, "Okay, fellows," he says, "The time has come," and he says, "We're going ahead." And that's when he said we were going to go to Normandy. So, what did you think at that point? Did you have any idea of what you were about to witness? You know. To be honest, when we were told that, in a way we were excited, and yet in a way we wondered what's going to happen. I mean, you know, it, you, you cannot make, in a situation like that, you cannot take and make instantaneous decisions. And after we, all of us were told, 
it, it, it just seemed like some guys got really upset. They were scared and everything. When you get there, uh, your mission at that point is to make sure that the Higgins boats are able to make their way to shore to get your boys, to get the boys in. Any time, like when these Higgins boats were going in, and some of them didn't make it because at that time, it was a choppy season there. And that channel, first of all, we went, it was not too bad, but that morning and, and that day, it got chap choppy, and some of the, sh the guys that were supposed to hit the beach, because the tide had still not receded, the water was too high, and a lot of these guys drowned because they had 150 pounds on their back. And it was our job, if any we saw anybody drifting, we picked them up, up out of the ocean. Well, on our ship, we probably had, an, uh, to my estimation, we must have seven or eight troop members that we picked up and put them on, a, on, our bow, on the stern of the ship. And then after a while, we took them over to the hospital ship that was there, and what they did with them, I don't know. So your mission becomes one of, of rescue. You're rescuing. We did everything. I mean, if, if you saw somebody drifting, you sort of grab a hook out there, and you pull them on and took them on board ship and then take them over to the hospital ship. Now, you're witnessing this at a time when there's thunderous explosion. I mean, this, I think you told me once before the sea was shaking because of the nature of the explosions. Yes, actually, you know, when, when, in fact, all night, you think you were watching a 4th of July demonstration, but it was not that, it was all the sh planes going over and dropping bombs on the French coaster. And actually, when you were in the water, you can just feel like the ocean was trembling from um, all that bombardment. You're 19 years old. Yeah. When you're watching this, you see your contemporaries in the water with those 150-pound packs struggling to stay above the yeah. surface. This was not an easy chore. You're a witness. I imagine you felt sort of helpless. Yeah, but, Paul, you have to remember this. You didn't have time to think. You were there for a job, and you had to take and show that you had common sense. And I think for my age, at the time I was, I think I was very responsible because I'll tell you what. My dad, he taught me two things. He says, responsibility and love. And he says, that's all you have to do. And so... This one barge was washed ashore, and our ship and the USS Pinto, the two of us, and he, I was one of the five guys that was sent there to, uh, to hook up the cable, and Pinto sent five guys, and the two ships, we pulled that thing off of the, the beach, and it took us, I don't know, maybe it seemed like eternal, but they said it took us about six, seven hours to tow it off the beach, and like I say, it was loaded down with ammunition, and they have the Germans knew that. That would have been like an atomic bomb. Right. Now, you're with a team of five guys on the Aracara, and your mission is to go out and attach the cable, which is a good-sized cable. Three-inch cable. Three-inch cable. 
you guys got to figure out a way to get that cable around whatever you're you're hooking it to on the the, the ship you're attempting well, or the see, barge you're rescuing. Each one we we as we went, we took a line, not a cable, a line, and once we got over on the onto the beach, then the ten of us guys we pulled these through cables, and then we hooked it onto the on a on the barge. And once they, the ships were saw that it was a secured, then they start pulling the barge off the beach. During all this, were there moments in time when you said to yourself, I, I know you said, you, uh, we just got to work. We got to go, go, go. But did you have moments when you said, I'm witnessing history here. And it's an awful history, but one that we have to be engaged in because we got we to gotta defeat the enemy. Did you ever have a moment to kind of suck it all in and say, wow, I'm in a, I'm in a moment of history. Well, well, like I say, you know, when you're 19 and 20, you say, nothing's going to happen to me. <laughs> and you had that attitude. And that's the attitude you got to have. Because if you think, hey, I'm not going to come back, you're SOL. Nonetheless, you're looking at guys your age who aren't making it, and that's not easy to take. Well, once Normandy is done, the Aracara heads south, and you go to the south of France. Do you know what you're getting into there? Well, you know, when you went to Southern France, first of all, we stopped off at uh, at um, Corsica, and they gave us a couple of days of leave, you know, and then we finally went up to uh, to the um, uh, Sardinia, and there we picked up the fleet, and then that's when we went to Southern France invasion, and that took place at San Rafael. But that was a piece of cake compared to what Normandy was. I mean, it was just, in fact, it was so easy there that, that because the Germans were uh, retreating and surrendering, the Army had to ask the Navy if they could take and send some shore patrol guys over there to help them out to keep the prisoners in line. Uh-huh. And that's what the Navy did. Were you part of that? I wasn't, but we had a couple of shipmates of mine, yeah. You had a chance for some R&R there, and you decided, I'm here, I might as well see the world, or this part of it, as best I can. So you made your way to the Vatican. Tell us what happened. Like a lot of the sailors, they went out gallivanting and boozing it up. and I says, hell, I'm over here. I says, I can see a lot of things I probably never see if I don't take the chance. So we went to Rome, and we saw the ruins of Rome and the Colosseum, and I rode those uh, rides that they give you in a, in a horse-drawn affair all over around uh, Rome and all. And then we decided, well, what the hell? Because I w- worked with two guys. They were from Cleveland, which I was from, and we all went to different schools, and we all played football against one another. But we never knew that we were going to be on the same ship. And we hung around like the three of us, and they called us the Three Musketeers. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we went to Rome, and we saw all of these things. And 
So we decided, well, we're, we're in Rome here. Let's go to the Vatican. And to me, that was the best thing I ever did. Because when you walk into that cathedral in the Vatican, it's awe-inspiring. So anyway, after that was all done, you know, and then we decided we were going to see some more, and the Pope always would come out, maybe have two or three sessions a day. He would talk to all of these different nationality. And so anyway, he came out, and he's talking, and, and he says, as he's going back to this chambers, and he says, when I make the sign of the cross, he says, if you so wish, you can touch my hand and kiss my ring. See, at that time, the Pope didn't have a mobile like he was carried by six Swiss guards. Lo and behold, like my two buddies and myself, we were standing there, and he makes a sign of the cross, and he puts his hand there, touched the Pope's, Pope Pius twelfth hand, and I kissed his ring. Now, how many people can say they touched the Pope's hand and kissed his ring? Pretty remarkable. Well, that was a wise decision to go to the Vatican. Now, to me, like I tell everybody, it just seemed, I think that's what I could attribute part of the success I'm having in life and my longevity. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, it's, I couldn't ask for any better. I say the good, like I always tell everybody, I got two of the greatest pilots in the world. The good Lord and my wife that's up there with me. I says, because when I do something wrong, they slap me and go by the head and say, hey, wake up, stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Once you're off R&R, you get back to the Arakara and you believe that you're going home and that the war is probably going to be winding down and ending soon. But then you get instructions, orders, to head to the Pacific. Before we went to the Pacific, when we came back from Europe, before I went overseas to Europe, I met Loretta here in Chicago. That's your wife. Yes. And when I was leaving, I asked her, I says, if I come back, I says, would you marry me? She says, yes, she would. So when I came back, we had my three weeks, and it was on from right around Thanksgiving to the first two weeks in December. So we got married on December 2nd, 1944. Congratulations. Yeah. And, and then I saw then after that, then I was sent out. Then she waves goodbye to you and you have to go off to the Pacific? Yeah. Did you know where you were going? All they told us, first of all, they told us we were going to go to the Pacific, but they said you're going to go to San Diego and you're going to operate out of San Diego. Well, when we were going through the Panama Canal, they said, don't even go to uh, Panama, to San Diego. So they said, go directly to Pearl Harbor. But you really, everybody on the Arakara had no notion that you're going to wind up in Okinawa in some of the fiercest fighting that the Pacific saw, yeah. that amphibious assault. What did you endure? Well, let me tell you one thing. You know being in Normandy, like it's a Normandy, southern France, Normandy and Okinawa 
were, were very reminiscent. Because when you're over in Okinawa, not only did you have to worry about the shore batteries and everything, but then you had these kamikazes coming and diving at you. And I don't know how many ships in the, out there that were hit, because there was a place with, what they called Karemareta. It went in the toll. And, it, and like I said, I was on a seagoing tug. And I, our ship alone, we must have taken it six to eight ships, pull them in the Karemareta there that were hit. And they would take and remove the dead bodies out of there and, and maybe transfer some of the guys to different ships, you know. And, but that was part of our job. What was your greatest fear in the Pacific? Kamikazes? Yeah, because they came at all hours of the day, night, daytime, anytime. They were going for the Arakara too, were they not? Oh, oh, they, any ship they could hit. We actually, we got strafed a couple of times, but nobody got hurt. And our skipper, since he was a, he was a harbor master on tugs in the city of New York. And he knew how to manipulate a tug pretty well. And when we were in, in, in right in the thick of it in, in Okinawa there, he was the one at the helm to tell, telling people how to, what to do with the ship. He was zigzagging? He was zigzagging in order yeah, to avoid yeah, kamikazes yeah, and shore battery? Yeah. Okay, the, a ship called the, the Longshaw gets hit and, I, and is badly damaged. It was casualties, a destroyer. And, and your job at that point, and you're with a team of, of the uh, five guys, you got to go and, and hook up the long shot, a rescue. Yes. How did, what happened? Well, when, when they got hit, they lost 87 men. They were killed. And the, uh, the, uh, the, the ship itself was so badly damaged because see what they did, they were bombarding Okinawa, and they were in there when the tide was high. And when the tide receded, she got hung up on a reef. And that's when the Japanese opened up on her. And we had to pull that thing off of the reef. And it took us, I don't know, maybe, in my estimation, it, it seems like eternity, but they said it took us seven or eight hours to try to pull it off. And when we pulled it off, then we took over to Cremoretta there, like I say, and there they turned around and rescued the took the dead bodies out of there and did whatever they had to do. In but, any case, you're in, a, you're in a tough spot where you've got to fix that cable and pull a ship off a reef and get it to safe harbor so it can be worked on. And you're, you're sitting ducks, right? Absolutely. Aren't, oh, yeah. See, like, even like I say, when we hooked up to this long shot, even while, while we were trying to pull it off, the... Um, the Japanese, they turn around, and not only did they concentrate on the long shot, then they start taking aim at us. So our skipper zigzag, zigs, and finally it got to the point, he says, let the cable go. So we let the drum off the cable, and we lost our three-inch cable. And then we had to go back after it was all over, and we tried to, we, we rescued some of the... Uh, some of the uh, people that were, you know, on the burned and all of that, and we took a couple off, off there, and we took them over to the hospital ship there. 
then the war winds down. Okinawa comes to an end, tragic as it was. Uh, where were you when VJ Day happened? When, when, the, when the Japanese finally surrendered after the bomb was dropped, where was the Arakara then? We were getting, we were over in Okinawa and we were getting ready to go up to Japan. And we were going to go there and pick up the 5th Fleet there and because they were getting ready to take and invade Japan. But then when we were on our way going over there, they turned around and that's, that's when they said that the Japanese had surrendered. So when we headed for Ulithi, we just stayed there at Ulithi, and then they turned around and they said, well, just stay there till we get your further notice. So when, when the fur, further notice came, that they turned around, like they say, they signed a treaty, I guess, what, S September 2nd? Yeah. And they said the war was over. What was your reaction on board ship and the reaction of your shipmates when word came that the war was over? Well, everybody jumped in joy. You know, we all got to have some beer. Because <laughs> the skipper, he'd give us, he always had beer on his ship. And like we don't have a, a he'd give us sometime, we'd pull in the port, he'd turn around and give us liberty. And he'd give each guy two cans of beer. Well, I never drank beer, so what I did, I always took the beer, and I always put it in my locker. And so when somebody say, hey, anybody got any beer? Yeah, I got beer. You want it? Yeah. How much you want to pay for it? <laughs> <laughs> I used to charge a quarter or half a buck for it. Oh, you're an entrepreneur. Yeah, and I'd send the money home to my wife, and she said, are you gambling? I said, hell no, I don't gamble. <laughs> no, I'm making money. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, you're not out of the woods yet entirely because on your way home, after the war is over, you encounter a typhoon. Yeah. Well, that must have been enjoyable. Did you say, what's next? Well, that's, you know, we, we, we were towing... We were going from Okinawa up to Korea, see, because they were going to invade Japan. So we were towing up these what they call luxury barges that it was supposed to be for the officers, you know, that be their quarters. So while we're going up there, we hit this goddamn typhoon. And shoot, we ended up, we rode that thing for almost four days, and we ended up all the way near Formosa. Did you get sick? Did you get sick? Not really. I, I mean, the only time I really got seasick of all the years that I was in the Navy was our initial cruise. And on our initial cruise, I don't know if you know where Cape Hatteras is. Yes. And that's a rough son of a gun all the time. And when we had our shakedown cruise, that's where we went. But after that, I never got seasick at all. During all of this... Two campaigns, one Atlantic, one Pacific, and then a typhoon. Did you ever fear for your life, or were you always in mode? I got to do my job. I got to get it That's done. That's the way it worked all my life. I said, I have no control over it. I said, the only one that control me is a man upstairs. Mm -hmm. And I said, if he thinks I have to go, he's going to take me. If he thinks I'm not, don't need me, I'm going to stay here, and I'm still here. 
And during your time after retirement, you, you worked for the, ra- the railroad, uh, Burlington Northern. You had a couple of jobs that you worked for many years after the war, raised a family. Uh, and you've spoken over time to school groups. You've told this story many times to, to kids so that they understand. And the message that you've, you've talked about before is talk to each other. Spend time and get to know the person you're talking to. Get away from electronics and talk to each other. That's an important message to you, isn't it? Well, see, when you, to me, let me tell when I go and I talk to people, the first thing I notice when I start talking, if their eyes are looking at me, they're interested. If they're down there, and that's determined. And that when, whenever I when I talk to the kids at school, I said, one thing you have to learn when your teacher or whoever's talking to you, addressing you, give them eye to eye contact. I said because this way they know you're interested. And if you don't look at them, they say, "The hell, you're not even interested." And that's the philosophy that I've lived all my life. Do you find that it, when you speak to kids that they understand what you're saying? That they are largely interested in the well, story you're telling? Well, I think they. I, I would say the majority of them did because I'll, I'll tell you why. Like when when I give speeches to classes, they would have a ten or fifteen minute period to ask me questions. And it, it'd be amazing how some of these kids came up with questions, you know. And I answered to my, the best of my ability. Did they ask good questions? Oh, yeah. In fact, like, like they'd say, well, how did you feel when you picked a, a, a dead body out, out of the water? I says, you didn't think about yourself. You thought about this man gave his life for me. I said, that's the attitude you had to take. And they look at you. Imagining what that experience would be like for them, right? So then you, um, a number of years ago, you did the honor flight. You went with Honor Flight Chicago to Washington, D.C. for your day of honor and thanks. Uh, I know that meant a lot to you then. It's, tell us, uh, what, what, let, what let impact me t- did it have on you? Let me tell you one thing. When I was asked, because the way I happened to get to go on it, my neighbor next door, Sue Geiger, she knew Liz Cook. And Liz Cook handled quite a bit of the honor flight. And so she had just happened to ask Sue Geiger next door. She says, do you know any World War II veteran? She said, hell yes, my next-door neighbor. So that's when right away Liz Cook asked me if I would be interested in going. I said, certainly would. And it just so happened when I went to Washington, D.C., Liz Cook was my guardian angel on that trip. Describe that experience. What did it mean for you? What did it do to me? Let me tell you one thing. It, it taught to me... That, you know, with all I went through, that there's still a lot of people that want to show their appreciation to you for what you did so that they can have the life that they're having and I am having here today. Well, a little thanks goes a long way, doesn't it? Absolutely. Like I say, you go on this trip. I guess we had 90 guys on, on the trip that we went on. 
and you don't know any of them, but you realize that all of these guys went through the same thing that you did. And you got that camaraderie between them, and it was unbelievable. And like I say, every man that, or woman that was on that flight, because there's a couple of women too, and I don't care where you went, you were never, never, never left alone. They guarded you like you were a gem that they didn't want to lose. They had high respect for you, and they showed it. Well, that's the least of what we can do. Thank you, John, for your service. Congratulations on making it to 96. A good diet and a Manhattan every day. <laughs> and I want to thank you for taking the time and interviewing me and giving what I can give to help you out in any way possible. My pleasure, sir. Thank, thank you. you.